Well, good morning. As the month is changing over, so is the sermon series. And for the next four Sundays, we're going to be talking about concentrating on obedience, on stewardship, and on thanksgiving. Obedience, stewardship, and thanksgiving. Basically, there's an old song that you'll no doubt notice that this sermon is titled after. Are we blessed by God? I know you pick on me for this, but I'm sorry, did I wake up in a, in a, in a, who haven't I picked on yet? Methodist church this morning. Are we blessed by God? Have we been the, have, have, are, if we're saved, then among all peoples of the earth, we have been blessed by our Creator. We have been restored out of the depths of sin and depravity to a position where we're not just favored by God. We are His children. We are called out of the deprivation of this world to be the heirs of the throne of God, to be His sons and daughters, to be eventually rulers in a kingdom we have yet to see. Now, if you've been studying along with me in our book of Revelation study, available on YouTube if you haven't, you'll know that the elders of the faith, when they meet God face to face, they are given crowns. And we've actually done studies in here on Sunday mornings about the rewards that you receive as part of the kingdom of God for faithful service. And today we're going to be talking about what that means, what faithfulness means. Because right now, more than any other time in our history, particularly here in the United States, being a Christian has a lot of question marks attached to it. Now, they're not question marks from the Word of God, mind you. They're question marks from the society in which we live. And it's, it seems almost in parallel with what we read in Genesis about what the enemy tells Eve. Did God really say this? Did He really want you to do that? Did God really say that sin would bring death? Our world is telling us the same thing. Does God really say that this is a sin? Does God really say that to be mentally healthy you have to be able to cope with the world around you and not say that you have your own truth in light of everything else? There is only one truth created in this, in this universe and that is God's truth. I am the, the way, the, and the, with the commandment after it that no one cometh unto the Father except by We need to know that. We need to preach that. That's a truth that we need to harbor in our hearts. Because if we don't, if we don't, then the example that we give as a loving people will have no merit. Because as people come up to us and ask us, what makes you different? Of all the people that can exhibit love and choose not to, why do you choose the right path? In a world where wrong seems right. What makes you different? If that's a truth that we cannot give them, if that's a gospel we cannot preach, then it's a gospel that will not result in names being written into the Lamb's Book of Life. So one of the things that we need to get down as part of the foundations of the faith is that salvation comes through the blood of Christ and not through our own works. That's very true. But after salvation, what is there? 
We call it sanctification. It's the journey by which, and it's a lifelong journey, that God uses the experiences of our, in our lives in tandem with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to conform us more and more into the image of His Son. That requires two things. Trust in God's faithfulness and obedience to God's Word. If you would, take out your copy of God's Word with me and Let's begin by getting these elemental things of the faith established first. Who is the God that we serve? God is all-seeing and hearing. God is all-knowing and all-wise. God knows more about you than you know about you. He knows about your future before it happens. He's already planned everything out for you. All of your missteps, all of your mistakes, all of your weaknesses, all of your wants, all of your needs, all of your desires, it's all laid out. He already has it figured out. All gracious and all loving. You are the reason that Christ went to Calvary. Do you know that in your heart? I am unfortunate. Through the events of this past week, we've discovered that several synagogues in the United States, particularly in the state of New Jersey, have come under threat. And while we do hold theological differences with them, we have to admit, if we, if we do believe in the second great commandment, love thy neighbor as thyself, our Hebrew brothers and sisters are what? They are our neighbors. Now, will anybody come to Christ if we treat them like garbage? Will anybody come to Christ if the people of God who were themselves oppressed at one point in time become the oppressors? This is something we're not called to do. We're called to be ministers of reconciliation. And I realize I'm getting on a tangent, but, but watch this really quickly. God desires a people who are different. The church that he calls out, he desires to be peacemakers, not instigators. He calls to be bridge builders and not an empire. He calls to be a people who loves him above all else, who loves the neighbor, the people made in his image, and to love one another. All gracious, all loving, you are the reason Christ died. Just as surely if it was us at the foot of Calvary with the hammers in our hands. The Jewish authority wasn't the reason he went up to Calvary. He was in control of the whole thing. Uh, when, when he, at the Garden of Gethsemane, when Judas approaches with the temple authority, who is it that makes the first contact? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who walks up to the soldiers, to the centurions, and he says in front of Judas, who is about to betray him, who seeketh thee? He was the one in charge. He had to die and he knew it. As surely as if we were in that centurion's uniform at the foot of Calvary, we are the reason that he died. Let's get that straight. But my point being is that God is all wise and all loving. That he made that pathway where there was no way. He is always faithful and righteous as well. If he makes a promise, you can be sure 
that he will fulfill it. On the other hand, there is the enemy. The enemy has limited seeing and hearing. He is not omnipresent. He is not omniscient. He is very knowledgeable, though, and he's tactically brilliant. It's often said that there hasn't been a church service yet that the enemy hasn't, that the devil hasn't been to. Trying to hold people back, listening to the scripture, trying to whisper in people's ears. He knows what he's doing. He's been doing it for a very long time. He's a corrupting influence with the goal of disaster. He promises people pleasure, but the resulting pleasure ends up in their downfall and their destruction. He is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once, even though the Bible tells us that he has a bunch of people uh, in his control and under his sway. He is powerful, yes, but he is not infallible. In fact, he is very prone to mistakes. The Bible itself calls him, what, the father of lies and a murderer. He may, he may not have been a person who plunged a dagger into the backs of Adam and Eve, but he's the reason they're dead. And to this day, if someone departs this life, who was the one that brought death into this world? It's the same one who prompted sin to take part in this world. Then there's us caught in the middle. You are both the pawn and the prize of a war that's been waging for thousands of years. I want you to think about that for a second. You are both the pawn and the prize. The question is which side do you want to be on? We have senses that are very narrow in scope. We can only see, hear, touch, taste, and feel what is right in front of us, right in that moment in time. We are foolish in terms of eternity. We are proud and easily corruptible. I think it was J.R.R. Tolkien who actually said that men value power and above all else. We are very short-lived and very limited. We are fallible and very much prone to error. If you have a choice between the good to do and the bad to do, we choose the latter more often than not. And the Bible, in fact, tells us that on our own, without the influence of the Holy Spirit, there are none righteous, no not. We are finite, feeble, fickle, fallible, and believe me, frustrating. That's unfortunately who we are. So in terms of the decisions that we make in our lives and as we develop the pathway to our lives, we've got, three main we've got several excuse me, questions to ask, but here are four I want you to concentrate on and write this down in your notes. Who do we trust as our authority? If it's the enemy, as apparently is now becoming a thing out in California, we're doomed to disaster. If we trust ourselves as the authority of our lives, as we just said, we're doomed to disaster. Who do we trust? Now again, as Christians, we have a very, very unique blessing in the fact that not only are we children of the king and under his authority, but we can go to his throne anytime we want. Whose truth is the truth? This world is trying to tell us right now in this postmodern culture that we live in that real truth doesn't matter, that whatever truth that you want to have happen, that's the real truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. Whose love is genuine? Now we've talked about this. We're not talking about of the 12 types of love that's described in the Bible. We're not talking about eros. We're not talking about um, romantic love, so to speak. We're talking about agapeo. We're talking about that self-sacrificing, self-denying, denying of the self-love. 
that is only found coming to us from one direction. Lastly, who ultimately, who ultimately has our best interests in mind? And then the ultimate question, at least as far as our earthly lives are concerned. Once we answer those four foundational questions, how then shall we live? Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne this morning, as we enter into the service of the word, open our hearts, hands, and minds to that which would transform us, that which would sculpt us more and more into the image of your, of your Son. Challenge us to grow. Challenge us to grow stronger. Challenge us to see you in everything and to hearken to the sound of your voice. That, yes, Lord, we are limited. We are feeble. We do not have a lot of strength. We do not have a lot of wisdom on our own. We do not have any righteousness that we can rely upon. But, Lord, you are strong. You are faithful. You are all wise and all loving. So may your strength be within us. May your wisdom guide us. May your spirit compel us to the mission you have before us. For it is in the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen. We're in John's Gospel, chapter 14. John's Gospel, chapter 14. The apostle is pinning down one of the last things that he is going to hear from his Savior as Jesus is preparing his closest friends for his departure from this life. He is instructing his disciples that even though his death is coming, it is not the end. As we join together, verse 15, from the voice of our Savior we read, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate, another in some of your translations, comforter, which literally from the Old English means, I will bring you someone that will give you strength. I will give you another strength giver to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you, you know Him. For he lives with you and will be what? In you. God in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I will live, you will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and that you are in me and that I am in you. And now this sounds like double talk to us. You read that verse, and there are so many things to it. It's so loaded that, that even the disciples, I would say at that point in time, had no idea what Jesus was talking about. He's trying to instruct them on the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. If you want to write this down in your notes, what Jesus is effectively telling them is that he himself, God made man. That through the power of the Holy Spirit that was coming upon his sacrifice, that God himself would never leave you alone, but through the power of the Spirit would be in you, with you, and upon you from this moment that you are converted on for the rest of your life. That is the promise of God through the voice of our Savior this morning. 
Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves the other line that in your copy of God's word. If there was enough evidence, would they be able to convict you that you were a Christian? This is that evidence. The one who loves me, what? Keeps my commandments. Not just some of them. Not just the ones that I feel like. Not just the ones that my culture finds relevant. No, Jesus does not give room for error. Those that love me wholeheartedly hold on to what I have taught them. Those who love me keep my commandments. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. And then Judas, not the Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not the world? Why are you going to Calvary? You have all this strength. You have all this power. Why don't you yourself do it? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them, more literally, make our home within them. You're going to be Christ to somebody else. That's what he's trying to say. Once the Holy Spirit has become part of you, body, soul, and spirit, the person that we are physically, the person that we actually are mentally, that will exist way beyond this old mud hut, and the Holy Spirit living in tandem, all together, the three in one, reflection of God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Once the Spirit is within you, you are the incarnate ministry of Christ continuing to live in this world today. Through the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit as He equips you, through the fruit of the Spirit and through the gifts of the Spirit, you are the representative of Christ still working, still doing, still going in this world. That's what He's trying to say. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. That's the hallmark of someone that is not a Christian, the wolf in sheep's clothing. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this is I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Underline verse 26 and on. The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will what? Will teach you all things. And for those of us who get cold feet at the thought of sharing the gospel with someone, underline this promise of God will remind you of all of everything that I have said to you. And here is the result of your obedience. This is the promise of God tacked on to his commandments. My peace I live with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you Peace as the world gives, peace that's built on happenstance, peace that's built on money, peace that's built on property, peace that's built on things that will rust, that will go away, that can be blown over. It's not that kind of peace that's built on if-then statements. It is the eternal, significant peace that passes all understanding that Christ has promised to all of those who love Him. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. You've heard me say I'm going away. I'm coming back for you. If you love me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. 
What does all that mean? Jesus fulfilled a multitude of ministries, but there are a couple that we need to bear in mind, the two that were highly prominent in our hearing as New Testament Christians. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. The first one is that he lived the righteousness of God without spot or blemish. No sin could be found within him. He was the first and only person to live the Mosaic law and to live it in completeness. As a Jew, he was found without fault. The only way that they could condemn him to death is by a show trial that they had, and an illegal one at that is recorded in your Bibles. He lived the law so that he could be a perfect sacrifice. To give us an example of what God's convicting law of righteousness really meant. So that when he went to Calvary, so that when, in anticipation of us needing his salvation, he, watched, he walked up to the Roman centurions who would beat him and who would ultimately crucify him. He would give us an example that we should adhere to, to be just as loving, just as giving, just as bold. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Let's take a look at how the New Testament is found in the gospel, in the Bible that Jesus used to preach from. First, the condition of mankind from the words of Jeremiah himself. The heart is deceitful above all things, beyond cure. Who can understand it? That's us. The problem that we face on our own, outside of the family of God, outside of the influence of the Holy Spirit, is that it is impossible to perform God's will on our own. We cannot be righteous on our own. We cannot please God on our own. We cannot so much as praise God on our own. The worship is required to be in spirit and in truth. And part of that, the half of that, is of course the Holy Spirit. There is nothing that we can do to satisfy God without the presence of Christ. It's impossible. To be human is also, it is also impossible to be human and not be corrupted by the sin nature. David himself once said that I was even born in what? Sin. That everybody from the moment that they come of age where they can tell the difference between right and wrong, they'll choose wrong every time. We cannot work to balance sin with righteousness because it doesn't work that way. The world wants to tell us that it is. It wants to tell us that if we do enough good deeds, the evil that we do will, will swing back to the good. But that's not how it works. Sin is not a balance. Sin is not a weight. Sin is a debt. It is a stain. It is something that has been applied to our hearts, applied to our clothing, applied to our spiritual outlook before a living God. And when God sees us and we don't have the blood of Christ upon us, he sees his broken law in that only. You cannot stand righteous before a holy, righteous God on your own merit. It is simply not possible. We cannot be found innocent before the judge that exists, the judge of all. And yet we're called to be obedient. That's the marker. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, we read this. Joshua 1. Be strong and courageous. 
because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all of my law that my servant Moses gave me. Do not turn from the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate it on it day and night. How many of us are capable of doing that? Think about that for a second. This is the charge of God to a human being. Then you will be prosperous and successful. The basic understanding is the more obedient that we are before a holy God, the more he will bless us. But as we just read, that's not possible, yet it's God's desire. Hold that thought. I know what you're thinking, and I'm going to get to it in just a second. God's desire is to call everybody to a saving faith. For it is the will of the Father that none should perish, but that all should come to salvation through, all should come to repentance through who? Christ Jesus. I'm sorry, we're gone Methodist again. He is wanting to change the hearts of humanity. David himself said, not to change my heart, O God, but create in me a what? A clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He even knew David, the, descent, the, the ancestor of Christ. Thousands of years before he came on the scene knew that the heart that I have right now can't do it. It's not up to it. It won't never pass muster. God has to create a new heart within me because I have a heart of stone. God himself will have to perform a miracle to change me from the foundation, from the core of who I am, to produce something better. It is impossible to be obedient to God's instruction under our own merit, but we can do that if we have that change. It is God's desire to bless you. Now, there are some out there that want you to think that by blessing you, it means that you call something into existence as if you were the creator of your own destiny that you can name it and claim it, grab it and blab it, however you want to phrase it, that this whole life is about health, wealth, and prosperity. What about the Christians that gave everything so that you could sit where you are right now and worship and pray in peace? They didn't have health, wealth, or prosperity. They had persecution, death, and pain. But what they also had through the presence of God is hope, peace, love, joy. They had something that this world could never take away, that disease could never hamper, something that a persecuting army could never strip them of. And they were willing to lay everything down for its sake and for you. I'm going to skip over this passage that I had down for you. Because just as we can't do things on our own, through faith, things change. The solution that God has for us is that before the foundations of the world were made, God knew the problems that we would have. He knew the impossibilities that were laid on our shoulders. He knew that we could never please Him on our own. 
And he knew that the stain of sin meant that even under the Old Testament, that we would be eligible to be in his presence one second, but the second that we sinned, what would happen? We'd be unclean again. We'd have to keep going back to the altar over and over and over again. Another bull, another goat, another ram, another sheep, another something that had to pay the price that we own. An all-sufficient substitution had to be made. Something that would cleanse us past, present, and future. Something that was perpetual, that could satisfy the wrath of God. A heart that was in God's likeness had to be changed out for the one that we were born with. A new spirit that had to change us over to regenerate us from being a fallen creation to being a child of the King. And to forge a new family that he called the church. The day is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, the people of God in other words. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them from the land of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was like a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law where? In their minds, and I will write it where? On their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people no longer. Will they have to teach their neighbor and say one to another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins. What? No more. A life of blessing becomes possible. A life where we can stare any challenge down, knowing that the strength of the Lord is behind us. A life where we can look into the challenges of this world, into any temptation, unto any pain, unto any persecutor, we can look at it and stare down with them from the, the tip of our nose because he who is greater, he who is within you is far and away greater than what? He who is within the world, once you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, there is nothing on this creation that can snatch him away from you. Once you are blessed and highly favored as the son of the king, nothing can take that away. And you have a job to do. We all have a job to do. And before we can claim the, the blessings of being able to exhibit that hope, peace, joy, and love, goodness, faithfulness, patience, temperance, self-control, all of that comes and is amplified as we are obedient to Him. With Christ comes salvation. With salvation comes the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God. Once the Spirit is with us, Sanctification, being able to be obedient to God and to be rewarded for it and to grow in Him becomes possible. And with sanctification, if we're willing to choose it, hear me, Christian, because you need to know this. With that obedience, blessing becomes possible. Nothing damages or destroys a church faster than people who claim to be a child of Christ and yet act like anything but. All it takes is one wrong answer to a temptation. We read in the New Testament that is, there is no temptation which will befall you that isn't common to men, but that with each temptation, God himself, the forethought side of God, 
the person who is the same today as he was yesterday and will be forevermore. That same God has put a trap door in the path of whatever that, that temptation is that you can use to escape. That's a promise of God. So there is nothing that the enemy can throw at you that, that God hasn't already provisioned you for. Don't diminish your blessing. Do not diminish your blessing. God does not, has never, will never bless sin. And as a believer, we need to understand this. Because the world that we live in today is trying to confuse our theology. They're trying to confuse our image of Christ. It's trying to confuse the difference between good and wrong, the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness, the difference between God's will and what is prohibited by God's will. Because God desires a close, personal, intimate relationship with you. God wants to bless you so that you may be a blessing to His holy name. God wants to see you succeed in whatever goal of ministry He has put upon your heart. Whether it is here with the local church, whether it is somewhere else in the place that you work, or if it is just a member of the community, whatever ministry God has called you to be a part of, He has equipped you to undertake that and to undertake that successfully. God wants to bless you, but just like an investment banker, God will only put more into you as He sees you doing well. God will only invest within you if you are faithful with what He's already given you. That's why He says, from to whom much is given, much will also be required. It doesn't have anything to do with money. It has everything to do with faithfulness. If God has blessed you, He requires that you take what He has given you and invest it back in Him. And as you are faithful, so will He be. Here's an example of that. From the prophet Malachi. And again, this is just one example. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. That there may be food in my house. Test me on this. How many times in Scripture do you know of that God actually has the audacity to look at His people and say, test me? Not often that a sovereign king will look at his, the least of his subjects and say, I want you to put me to the test on this, but here our king does. Test me on this, says the Lord God Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not enough room to store it. Test me on this. God's word has a requirement that we reinvest 10% of what he blesses us with back into the work of the ministry. And he adds a promise to that, as he does so many other things. This is but an example. Do you tithe your resources? Do you also tithe your time? Do you tithe your talents? Do you tithe your work ethic? How much of yourself do you balance in, and that's an important word, balance, to the work of the kingdom? 
Because there are some that give everything. And there are some that sit on the pew. If we have a visitor that comes in, what are they going to say when they see 20% doing 80% of the work? Obedience brings the joy of the Lord to us. Obedience reinforces that peace which passes all understanding because we see God sustaining us in hardship. Obedience brings the revealed plan for our lives because little by little, every time we're more and more obedient to Him, every time we answer His call, He shows us a more and more of a glimpse of the truth of where our lives are leading us, what He's called us to do. Obedience brings an answer for all life's challenges. Why? Because He is the answer to every challenge. Everything that you face, He's already determined the solution to. All you have to do is trust and obey. Our faithfulness is rewarded by God's faithfulness. That's what Malachi is trying to teach us. Our faithfulness is rewarded with God's faithfulness. And finally, obedience brings others to the realization of the incarnate image of Christ in you. Let me explain that just a second because that's what Christ was talking about back in John. When people see you forgiving each other. When people see you loving each other. When people see you giving and not expecting anything in return, not even thanks. When people see you at the forefront of ministry doing what others would choose never to do themselves. They see the hands and feet of Christ at work. Every salvation is a miracle. Every Christian that remembers that salvation and that works to keep themselves in the will of God is a miracle too. What was that beautiful old song of the faith? Let others see Jesus in you. This is where that comes into play. That's how Christ reveals himself to the world. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? This is Paul writing to a church. Do, do you need me to go down to Jerusalem to get them to sign a statement that says I'm worth it? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. Does our ministry make a difference? You can't tell it by the numbers packed in pews. You can't tell it by the amount of money that you have in a bank account. You can tell it by the people that are at your church. You can tell it by the people that you're engaged with, that you're teaching, that you yourselves are discipling. If they look like Christ, then guess what? You're doing your job. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on the tables of your human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes where? From God. We can't do it on our own. We cannot do it on our own. We don't have the strength to do it on our own. We don't have the wisdom to do it on our own. We don't have the resources to do it on our own. 
But if we are obedient with the little that we have, just as Christ was talking in the book of Revelation to the church, the little church, excuse me, the little church at Smyrna, he said, you have but a little strength. But if you're obedient, see it rewarded. Christ's strength, Christ's wisdom, Christ's guidance, Christ's authority, all of that is what makes the difference. Not what we can do, never what we can do. But hear me, Hylon, for both the season that we're in and for any season in our past and for all seasons in our future, It's never what we are capable of doing on our own. But it's always about what God is capable of doing through us. If we are but obedient, our faithfulness will indeed be rewarded by His. And all God's people said. So Heavenly Father, as we transition now, as we leave the service of the word and approach your table. Lord, examine our hearts for those times that we were not found faithful. Examine our hearts for those times when we did act in accordance with our own wisdom instead of working with yours. Examine our hearts for those times that, that Lord, we saw only the problem instead of the one who is the solution, where we did not love our neighbors as ourselves when we did not love our brothers and sisters as you have loved us, or worse, where we did not love you first and foremost above all things. Lord, forgive us our sin. As we approach your table, heal our hearts, heal our souls, create within us a new heart, O God. Fill us with a revival not only to be uh, the church that you would have us to be, but to be the ministers that you would have us to be. To win those who are perishing. To care for those who are dying. And to love our brothers and sisters in Christ just as you have loved us. Join with us now as we approach your table. Forgive us so that we may approach it with a clean heart. And use this time to bind our hearts together. Though we are many, with many last names, make us now one family under Christ. And it's in his matchless name that we pray. Amen.